Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Episode 23 of Speaking Up. This is a podcast about telling the truth, speaking up in times of turmoil and hopefully times that aren't tumultuous. Great to have you here today. I have a friend on with me, Michael Slaby. Some of you may know him as the former chief innovation officer and CTO of Obama for America. Just a little twice successful U.S. presidential campaign, among many other things. This guy's also a volunteer firefighter and a civic renaissance man. We're going to get into all that in a minute. But first, Michael, welcome. You with us? I'm here. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Thanks for coming, brother. Uh, I thought we'd start off with something really, really light, like the fact that it seems like all of our heroes have died in politics. Nice and easy for a Saturday yeah, afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Happy Saturday, everyone. Seems like all the good guys are gone. Uh, I'm just going to throw that question right at you, and then maybe we'll wind it back to something actually lighter. But, Michael, are all the good guys gone? No. I mean, I think... You know, even in the the title of the conversation today around as politics gets grimmer, I think part of what we're seeing is this separation between politics and community life for most people Um, that serving in community in our civic life is still vibrant and rich for a lot of folks. But that feels increasingly divorced from what we see as politics, which is this gross morass of self-involved, self-centered leaders uh, who are disconnected from the people they serve, whose incentives are not aligned with delivery um, and stuck in systems that don't feel very representative and don't really feel like they're about me or my life. And, and so it's not that the good guys are gone. I'm just not sure as many people even look to politics for good guys at all. And I think that's sad. It's unfortunate. It seeds a lot of important opportunity for service and for self-government to folks that we don't have a lot of confidence in all the time. And But my experience is that there are good guys everywhere, that there are men and women of faith and strength and community all around me all the time. I live in a small village in Dutchess County in uh, the Hudson Valley in New York, and you know, when I moved here four years ago and joined the volunteer fire department and became an EMT, I felt that presence of community and service and good people all the time, every day. Um, and so I think we see it and feel it. I think the question about politics and the role politics plays in our life is, is where the question mark is for me. I want to ask you about the Obama campaign, because whether or not someone politically supported Barack Obama, it's tough to deny that that feels like it was the last time folks really had a hopeful energy towards politics. I mean, even I watched on election night in 2008, even people who didn't vote for Barack Obama weeping at his victory speech because it felt like such a seminal moment in our civic lives. I don't really think we've experienced anything quite like that since then. I mean, I can't think of a moment since his, his victory address in Grant Park in Chicago in 2008, that was quite like that. Do you think we're going to look back and see that as a, 
as the last time we felt hopeful in politics? Or, or do you see a little more light at the end of the tunnel there? Are we going to have more moments like that going forward? And what do we need to do to uh, get ourselves back to that place? A bunch of thoughts there. I mean, I it was a special historical moment. It was um, a unique moment in history, a unique moment in the history of technology and innovation. Um, and it carried a lot of weight for a lot of people um, in, in all kinds of important ways. Uh, I think w- what is true, interesting about um, this sort of President Obama sort of era in democratic politics is it sort of coincided with the digitization uh, and the rise, the digitization of sort of civic engagement and the rise of social media as sort of a fundamental pillar or component of the network of information that we rely on for our public sphere. And the 2012 election in many ways feels to me like the last campaign where you have two candidates competing in in a single campaign over a con- the view of the country. Um, after that, built on all the pressure and all the sorting that we that has happened in politics, in party, and in media, all together. By the time we get to the 16 cycle, we have two almost in almost entirely non-intersecting campaigns engaged with totally disparate communities. And you basically have two countries sharing geography, seeing who can turn out the most voters. And it's a totally different conversation. It's a totally, I mean, the, to your question and your point about the hope of that moment, I think what was interesting there, despite the rise of partisanship that, that occurred after President Obama's election, um, I think we had a, a, a moment of at least a, a pro- set of promises. One of the hopes about that campaign was about changing Washington, about changing how politics was working or not working for people. And I think that hope is something that people still hold on to. And I would say that the failure to sufficiently deliver on that promise is actually one of the things that leads those same people still craving a civic life that feels like it's more about them, feels like it's more participatory, feels like it's more representative to then turn and see the emergence of president Trump as a continuation of the same ambition. Politics needs to be different. And I think there is a line, um, clearly not a moral or ideological consistency. Um, I'm not drawing any kind of equivalency there between president Obama and president Trump, but this symbol of we have to, the system is not working for us um, and a desire for it to be different. And I think that desire is still very much alive. Um, It's still very much alive in, you know, you see, we see the sort of increasing uh, desire and interest for politics to be different and people feeling very frustrated and disengaged that it's not changing. Um, the good news about that is it's up to, we can change at any time. The, the thing that I am always optimistic about with systems like this, that feel so inevitably dysfunctional is that it's not actually inevitable that these are, you know, institutions and culture sort of driven and controlled by people and, we can change those people and we can change those systems. 
And those that's hard. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I want to be honest about <laughs> the hand wave I'm making like, Oh, we'll just change, you know, all of political life in America. No big deal. It's a huge deal. <laughs> Where's I your mean, magic wand? Yeah, no, no, no. It, it isn't a magic wand, but it's not, it's also, while it is very hard, it's not actually that complicated, like building community power and changing cultural conversations in the direction of service and community is is something that we can do and invest in and looking for ways and opportunities to create more healthy civic opportunities for engagement for like genuinely diverse genuinely integrated community conversations where we are genuinely invested in each other's thriving and service to each other we we can create opportunities like this even as some of the structural dysfunction of democracy still feels very much alive around the, both parties, around voting, around gerrymandering, around campaign finance. There's a lot of, of dysfunction to go around and ultimately finding our ways insti- into institu- places of institutional power is necessary to fix some of those structural problems, but we can start building cultural power right away. And it well, just I, demands us be behaving differently. I, I, I love your, optimism. It's it's one of the things that I like most about you. But like any good storytelling exercise, I'm going to stop you there and I'm, and I'm going to take us back in time because I want to end where you just picked us up. And but I, I want to take us back for a minute, Michael, and and tell, you know, listeners what it was like when you were working on those two presidential campaigns for Obama, because I think you had a really, really unique perch into where we started to take a turn in our politics. And it's interesting how you draw a line between Obama's aspirational vision to remake Washington that then, after many years, evolves into an angry vision to remake a Washington. A destructive we go from, Yeah, we go from hope and change to, you know, drain the swamp and phrases like American carnage in mm-hmm. Trump's inaugural address. Um Tell me about that experience of being on those campaigns. And then I want to ask you, in that journey you took, where did you see the right turn happen in American politics? Right, where, where, where did the shift happen if there was one? And, 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 and what, what did that journey look like from your vantage point? Yeah. I mean, the, that first campaign, I joined uh, Obama for America in March very beginning of March, 2007. So a couple weeks after the announcement and it was a, a kind of sort of magical, exciting movement of true belief in those early days. Um, the campaign was really small. Um, you know, then Senator Obama was sort of the guy with the funny name from Illinois that most people hadn't heard of. I mean, this was not, this was an improbable campaign and, uh, it, it was rooted in belief about how politics could and should work best that really came out of President Obama's personal experience as an organizer and an ethos around sort of our best angels was, was really part of how we thought. And, and there is a certain naivety to some of it. You know, many of us, you know, there was a huge democratic field of very capable people and all of the, you know, senior democratic talent was all working for all of those people. And so, you know, I showed up, uh, I was brought in by Joe Rosepars, who was the digital director at the time. 
um, and to help build the digital team. Uh, and in those earliest days, one of the most innovative choices that happened in that first campaign was that Joe reported to the campaign manager. And I know this is like a weird sort of insider, insider sort of kind of detail to emphasize, but it meant that digital was able to fold its way into being an enabling function for the entire campaign rather than being a subservient channel to traditional communications. And that structural choice about Joe reporting to David Pluff, our campaign manager, enabled the digital team to start trying and experimenting with all kinds of stuff. Because what was true was that while the sort of ethos and soul of the campaign was rooted in you know a very old tradition about organizing, we did not invent community organizing in the Obama campaign, what we saw was a political reality, which was that we were going to get crushed in a traditional Democratic primary. And because a traditional Democratic primary electorate was going to vote for a traditional Democratic primary candidate. And that wasn't then Senator Obama with the funny name from Illinois. And so it meant we needed to go out and try new ways to get new people invested and involved in politics and give people a real sense of control and power and helping them build power in their own communities and that felt really new to people. It felt very fresh. It hadn't happened in a real way in, in a, probably in a generation. And so most, many, many first time political and enge politically engaged people felt like it was the first time that they had been offered an opportunity and a mechanism to be leaders and to participate in civic life in a way that felt engaging and optimistic and empowering. And that's where our, our sort of energy, particularly around technology, was driven by what doors can we open for people to get new people into this process? Because that's the only way we're going to win. And so I think while we get probably more credit than we deserve for the innovation sort of engine around that campaign, you know, timing has a lot to do with the success of a rain dance. And we, we, we had the first opportunities to try most of this stuff. What drove most of the innovation was the political reality, political desperation. And, um, but it led us down a path. Uh, I think in those early days, this was sort of pre social media was still really new. You know, at this stage, keep in mind, Twitter was six months old. Facebook had only been open to non edu addresses for two years. And so social had not. Yeah. The, the trolls were just in their infancy. Yeah, so baby, you didn't baby have to trolls. Deal with the yeah, just baby trolls. You didn't baby have to trolls. Deal with the, it was totally the, the it, big it, old it, goblins. Yeah, I mean, and the, particularly the baby trolls around monetization and the business model of media. Two things hadn't really happened yet. One, social hadn't really knit all of the old form, older forms of media together into a shared network. Uh, social was still very much a sort of uh, a neophyte, sort of new. Um, early adopter sort of subculture-y kind of thing to a large degree. It was not a ubiquitous part of the way information moves around and interconnects different kinds of previously disconnected media into the sort of messy network that we live in now. That had not happened yet. And Facebook wasn't trying to make money yet. <laughs> um, it, the, we just weren't in the same entirely sort of dr dollar-driven, engagement-driven optimization engine 
uh, that we live in now. And so there was a little bit of sort of golden moment about what was possible with digital organizing at that time that has gotten, um, you know, harder, frankly, over time. Uh, as, as these tools have gotten more ubiquitous, they've actually gotten harder to organize in, in some ways. Um, and I think as we look from eight to 12 to 16 to 20 to today, um, we see a progression of the pressure, the business pressure and the business model pressure of these tools, um, and other forms of media having to adopt similar unhealthy habits around information, civic sort of the, the need for clear guidance uh, around sort of public sphere and civic conversations is that those spaces have gotten harder and harder to organize healthily in, and they've become a greater and greater sorting pressure on separating people rather than connecting people. Um, that doesn't mean that we can't organize effectively digitally. It doesn't mean that, that the opportunity to engage new people with curiosity and empathy isn't still there. But our habit, the troll, the baby trolls are now big trolls and the big trolls are very hard to organize around because they just take up a lot of space and a lot of noise and you get stepped on and it's hard to maintain a healthy conversation. Uh, did and so did you feel like in that process, a lot of that happened during the while it was happening? Yeah. yeah and, and any president, especially a two term president is going to see public opinion start to turn against him. The public gets frustrated uh, with their leaders when things don't happen as fast as they want them to. But Obama uniquely had to contend with this, you know, shift from a really optimistic social media climate. Everyone loved the tech companies. Everyone loved the tech companies, not just inside the beltway across the country. It was fun. It was exciting. Towards the end of his term, we saw politics getting really, really nasty, fueled by social media uh, being a tool for the evil in us, if you will. Was there a moment, and this is all, you know, we create stories for ourselves when we look back at politics. So it probably didn't happen as crisply and as grimly as, as, as it looks. But for you, was there a moment or a series of moments where you felt like things were starting to take a little bit of a darker civic turn? So, I think there are a couple of things that are important to remember. A lot of the clarity that I have about this is a hundred percent in, in hindsight. We, we weren't this, we, we were experimenting. Um, we were inventing a lot of this as we were going along and figuring out how to adapt what we knew about communities and organizing to these new spaces. So what it wasn't, I'm making it sound, you know, probably more well thought out than it was. Um, I think a, a couple of things about that shift. I mean, I think one of the things that's important to remember is even as early as 2008, before I, I sort of mentioned that it was felt like in some degrees, it was before the sort of full, like knitting all of media into a sort of a single major graph. You already had two very sort of polarized very distinct cultural parts of the country experiencing that moment very, very differently. And I think it's important to look back even um, with, with some clarity about that sort of sort of utopic, beautiful moment of, of, you know, you taught, you described the grand park uh, uh, celebration in 2008, that next morning felt like, a, a collapse of culture to a whole different other set of people in America and uh, this sort of triumph of elitism and sort of coastal 
hipster smugness. I mean, just, there's just a lot of, um, that a moment was not universally, ex- uh, experienced. And I think that distinction gets lost a lot of the time and, and gave rise to what, what, you know, originally was the tea party, um, you know, really a year later on the heels of president Obama's victory, that, that those two things are, are very closely connected. And in exactly those moments is when Yevgeny Morozov was writing The Net Delusion and Rebecca McKinnon was writing Consent of the Network. So people were already starting to look at the pressure that these tools were putting on society and flashing warning signs all the, all the way back then, more than a decade ago. And I think the cyber utopianism of, you know, Silicon Valley uh, you know, in, during the Obama years was, was, was very naive and was a huge missed opportunity to publicly articulate what we wanted public, what we wanted the public goods to be from these systems. And I think never having made that case convincingly, you know, we have mostly gotten what has been best for the platforms and their profitability, which has put an enormous amount of pressure on civic life and on the effectiveness and health of our public sphere. And uh, we ought to have been, we ought to have had a clear view of that. I think, I think looking back, there are missed opportunities in, in those years around how we thought about these tools and how they grew, what we wanted to do with them, what commitments we wanted to make. Um, I think you build on that, this sort of sorting pressure on top of this sort of frustration around every, you know, statements like everybody experienced that moment as this moment of hope. It's like, actually, there's a whole bunch of people who saw, who saw that, felt that, felt that very differently. And I think that, that feeling about, um, the country and the, and the, and the sort of the sense of the future and a sense of futurelessness in communities around the country and, and lots of communities, very different ones, diverse ones share this sense of anxiety about the future right now. And I think that is something that when we look forward is, is an opportunity to shift the way we think about innovation in service of humanity and in service, in service of shared abundance and in service of our capacity to all be elevated um, and sort of letting go of some of our more traditional views around a zero sum economy and around uh, sort of a scarcity and competitive mindset around success and thriving that put us back in line with each other. The challenge is that I don't hear those incentives around knitting community and integrating community are not held by most party oriented political leaders at this moment to come back around to the like politics getting grimmer and where all the good guys gone, neither party are well incentivized to lean into the opportunity of a more abundant future. And so that leadership is showing up, is going to be showing up in other places. It's going to show up in culture. It's going to show up in uh, s- sort of social movements. It's going to show up in a bunch of other places be that, uh, that feel a little bit orthogonal, thank God, to the really destructive, boring, binary pendulum swing of American politics right now. Well, you know, Michael, there's something that strikes me about the way that you and I have 
talked in the past about social media and the impact that it's had, we innovated our way into this mess, <laughs> right? We, we invented some really extraordinary things that no amplified doubt. the divisiveness of our politics. And I want you to give us your take on whether we can regulate our way out of it or innovate our way out of it, because there's discussion every single day. We have it around cookouts with friends. It happens on TV every day about how we just need to regulate the social media companies. But, and this is my personal opinion, it strikes me that that's going to be just as likely to be successful as if we tried to regulate the use of the telephone to keep people from saying things we didn't want them to say on the telephone. I mean, this it, the genie's out of the bottle on social media. I wonder if you think there's a way that we can innovate our way out of this. And, and let me put forward, this, or at least sketch a, picture for you to erase and, and draw over or, or to make a little bit more lucid for folks. And that would be the possibility that as technology becomes more personal, maybe the insults, maybe the trolling will become less personal. So hear me out, you know, on, on Twitter, someone can say something nasty because they don't see you, they don't hear you, they don't experience you. But, you know, it's the old phrase, you know, someone would tweet what they wouldn't say in the street. Um, once they can see you and hear you, there's inherent empathy in encountering another human. I mean, we're, we're just, from an evolutionary biological perspective, we're designed to generally want to prevent bad things from happening to people we see. It's the same reason why, you know, you see someone bleeding on the side of the road. Your gut reaction is not just to whistle and, and drive onward. There's, there's that built-in empathy that's a survival mechanism and, and all, a lot of species have it to protect their own. Do you think as technology gets more personal, virtual reality, augmented reality, that there's maybe a way to innovate ourselves past the division or am I being really way too Pollyanna-ish? No, I, I don't think you are. I think it's, I think it's both. I don't think, I think when it it's, I don't think it's innovate or regulate. I think both of those tools of society, um, regulations being a sense of guardrail around what we think is good and acceptable and helping guide behavior in the direction of the things that we value. And innovation also needs North stars to navigate toward. And both of those things are different expressions of culture and of values that need expression. And that's what, to a large degree, I believe, has been missing from the innovation conversation over the last decade, which is we have assumed to a large degree that greater connectivity and healthier Western liberal democracy um, will will inevitably emerge from greater connectivity. Um, but that's not it's not inevitable, especially depending on how the platforms are monetizing the experience and therefore what incentives they put in place for what types of engagement rate make them the most money. I'm not saying that these all need to become not-for-profits. What I'm saying is that how, how we want greater connectivity to contribute to empathy and community and integration and cultural growth and creativity is going to require us to state explicitly what we want from some of these things. And that should be a public discussion. That should not be 
two two folks in a dorm room deciding that that should be a public conversation, which is where I think public expression of principles getting expressed as regulation can come into play and be an important and valuable tool to guide creative innovators in healthier directions that aren't just about chasing profit. Um, we may need to build viable, sustainable, incredibly profitable business models that enable that to happen at scale and effectively. Um, but I think, I think those two things are deeply related. I also think that the current systems that we rely on are so dysfunctional that just leaving them be is, is not likely to, to produce a good result because to your question around the anonymity piece, there's no question that there are experiences that where and moments in, in time and in life when anonymity is important, but for the most part, civic participation and public sphere, public discourse is better when it's not anonymous. Now there's a fine line there. Um, making sure that we are not in unintentionally quelling dissent, making sure that we are not unintentionally endangering minority opinions um, is something we have to be very, very careful with. Um, and your point about we, we tend to behave worse um, when there are no consequences is also true. Um, uh, so I think creating some incentives for, for healthier behavior, optimizing for community and for creativity and for a healthy public sphere is something we can ask of these platforms and then they can go be brilliant, right? Like what I, what I resist and find just incredibly callous and disingenuous is technology platforms saying, that they're the smartest people in the world and that they can solve all of the world's known problems if we just leave them alone and let them, you know, innovate and build stuff and then say it's too hard to make the conversation healthy. That's just not true. They just, you know, the, the probably one of the most glaring uh, facts that came out of uh, the most recent sort of Facebook whistleblower conversation was that when it comes to misinformation, Facebook is entirely passive. They, re they respond when, uh, users, uh, not customers, users, people flag things as misinformation, but they only managed to get through 5% of those reports and they made $10 billion last quarter. This is easy math, right? Make well, it's, nine, it's like make nine billion and get through all hundred reports. Like it's not that it's just not that hard. I mean, you, you and I, I, I'm, I know for a fact have very different philosophies when it comes to the role of government in society and regulation. I think that's particularly true economically, but I think cult civic culturally, that's not, we're actually very tight. Oh, no. Civic, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're off on the, on the same civic ayahuasca trip. Really just we're floating out there. <laughs> <laughs> having a great time. But now it, I, now I, it's a Saturday. There, now we're in Saturday mode. Lean back in your chairs, folks, because Miles and Michael are about to have a real good time with you. Um, uh, but I've got to say that on the, you know, on, on the social media front, I, 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 these companies, and, and I worked in one, they build a lot of language and optics around how they're trying to keep the bad out. But at the end of sure. the day, the spirit of these companies is still what the spirit 
of the major newspapers were in the yellow journalism era when the phrase, if it bleeds, it leads, became popular. They know that stuff that's vitriolic, that's angry, that's misinformation. It gets attention. It spreads faster. Of course they know. I mean, they're smart people. Exactly. No matter how much they try to paper over it. I mean, that's just the reality, right? I think that's true. But I also think they've stumbled into a level of responsibility that they never knew they were going to not even sure. I don't think they knew was coming. I don't know that they're, they're certainly not ready for it. Like when, when Mark was hanging out at, in a Harvard dorm room and like, you know, trying to connect his classmates to each other, right? Like, I don't think at that moment he, he's clearly has some capacity for vision, but I don't know that even in a world where he started to see this as a connective tissue for society, he realized the level of responsibility that he was going to end up holding in his hands for the health or ill health of our public sphere. And it, you know, it's, you're a little bit the dog to catch the car. And, um, I, I think they also, these companies also need help. Um, the it, regula- regulation is not just a hammer. It's also a set of tools to help guide decisions. And, you know, they say a lot of the time, well, we don't want to be the ones determining what's good and bad. You're damn right. You shouldn't be the ones determining what's good and bad. That needs to be a public, the public process. And, but we need to give them something to design against. And that public process needs to be as broadly inclusive as it can be. Will it include everyone and will it be perfect? Of course not. But we've got to do our best to make sure that if it is a public sphere and there are public goods that we are getting from these things, that we're actually getting what we need. And Michael Sandel wrote a really brilliant book a year or two ago about uh, the moral limits of markets. And it's not, like I said, it's not necessarily that markets and growth or wealth are bad. They're they're. I don't think they're inherently bad. What I think is that they don't inherently provide public goods the way we might need them to be provided. It may be the case that in some cases, in some instances, we need to put a thumb on the scale. And that thumb is a public representative, self-governed thumb of need and desire and declaration. And maybe that's just a cultural conversation. Maybe it's not regulation. I think it's probably going to end up being regulatory at some level because there's now a decade of these algorithms running on us and we're going to have to run them back for another decade. Um, And I think that's probably going to require something more heavy handed than just a North star, but the North star is needed and we can do that anytime we want. That conversation is available anytime we want to pick it up. It's, it's tough to, I think, make the argument that right now we're living in a period of gutter politics that is so uniquely bad, no generation's ever experienced it. I mean, anyone who's a student of history knows that the, That's not contentious, true, yeah. Yeah, the contentious election of 1800 led a, a former American vice president to shoot a former secretary of the treasury and kill him. You know, the 1960s, we experienced a raft of political assassinations. I mean, politics has been vitriolic before. It's been violent before. This may be unique because of social media, but but we've experienced this. And we've yeah. also experienced and there are, getting our There are also unique features to it. 
right? Yeah. And and some of the things learning from history is important. Um, but there are some things that are like one of the things you you mentioned about like when you include social in that conversation is the speed of that process is different, um, and the speed of information is different, and the like living in a state of constant information overload. Um, puts us in a, a very different psychological place in terms of our capacity to engage with new things, with novelty, uh, to, to feel safe. Um, all of those things are under pressure. Um, and so while we have, we have, <laughs> we are not inventing polarization. <laughs> we, we are, we are stressing it and accelerating God, it in new, in Michael, new ways. If you and I invented polarization, we would just make so much goddamn money. <laughs> <laughs> somebody else already did somebody somebody else already did that mark mark already has all the money yeah but but if we you know if you it's it's really just as it requires the simplest historian to say we've we've gotten ourselves into bad periods and there, there are lessons for getting ourselves out and i'm not blowing smoke at you and saying this you are genuinely one of the most innovative political thinkers around today and that's why i can't wait to just push this out aggressively is because i I think a whole bunch of folks in future years are going to start knowing the name Michael Slaby as a little bit more of a household name. And you're rolling your eyes right now and you're going to laugh at me later for saying that, but they will because you're one of the, I'm doing both now, actually. But yeah, okay. you're one of the more innovative political thinkers I know today. And that's saying something because there's politics is, you know, what, the second oldest profession, they say, and I'm not going to make the joke. But that means there's very little <laughs> innovation left to do in it. Uh, but you're also the rare optimistic thinker right now and what we really see is a huge drought of optimism in our politics and it's one reason that i feel like obama's campaign soared and you helped make that happen as you all tapped into not just frustration but channeled frustration into optimism which is a very hard thing to do in politics and some of it as you said is timing but part of it really is the messenger uh so give us a dose of that then michael what are the lessons that we can learn from history about how to get ourselves back up out of the gutter? And maybe what are some of the things that our progenitors, our forebearers didn't have? What tools did they not have to get us out of it that maybe we can consider innovating on? So there's a, a lot there. So I, first of all, I think we are best served by, learning from history, but looking forward, uh, that the, the, the things that are going to save us are in front of us, not behind us. And the reason I say that is that the challenge and difficulty and dysfunction of American democracy that we are in at this moment is not, it didn't emerge from something that was beautiful and perfect and functional and devolved to where we are. American democracy started out off as soon as we like on paper di damaged and, and a little bit dysfunctional, right? The first thing we, the first thing we did was institutionalize the enslavement of other people. So it, we, we have been sort of off center from the very beginning, trying to find a better center every generation. And there's pressure in both directions. And that part of why that pressure emerges is a sense of, is this sense that if other people rise, I will fall and letting go of the idea, or let me rephrase that embracing the idea that what is good for you is good for me is part of a path forward that, that it is not necessarily not necessary that more liberty for someone else means less liberty for me. 
And one of the things that we have now that they didn't have at the beginning was a wildly more diverse enfranchised public set citizenship that is included and, and that is our source of creativity and innovation. If we are willing to see new ideas and people and cultures as good for everyone, right? One of the, the, the real sort of problems around the way we are talking right now, I think about liberty and justice. And, and this is an interesting because tomorrow's Juneteenth. And we talk about this, this moment of freedom for formerly enslaved people in Americans in America and sort of what the black black American experience has been like in the centuries since is when we talk about, for instance, on the left conversations about anti-racism mm -hmm. that is better for white people, a society that is rich and empowered and inclusive and where everyone experiences justice and opportunity in equal ways is better for everyone not just for black Americans. And it certainly doesn't hurt white Americans. It is not about the pulling down anyone. It's about elevating everyone and getting everyone into a state and into a set of opportunities and making up for sort of failures and mistakes of the past in ways that make the present genuinely and authentically it get equal and that liberty is equally available to everyone. And that's something that we can do now that the founders couldn't do because they weren't including people. They weren't including women in that process. One of the things that has been deeply dysfunctional of the last, last couple of decades in the instant sort of increasingly sort of painful industrialization of meaning in American society is that we have deeply unbalanced masculine and feminine leadership. And one of the things that, that is necessary to be, to making diversity about the celebration of difference and not the tolerance of divergence from a norm is finding a way to be genuinely inclusive about the way we engage with curiosity and novelty in the world. And that requires slowing down. That requires listening more. It requires being less definitive and more deliberative about the way we engage with where good ideas and where new ideas are going to come from. The biggest challenge you talked about sort of where like lack of innovation in politics, part of what is the pressure that we're, we're sort of suffering under right now is that because of the polarization, neither party is incentivized to have good ideas or new ideas. In fact, new ideas can get you kicked out of a party. And that's the worst possible way to deliver for Americans, for leaders with good ideas to be expelled uh, ideas that are consistent with our values and principles and that will elevate other people, but being inconsistent with a, a sort of hegemonic party-based way of seeing the world um, being expelled from public life. Well, the, I and, maybe shouldn't have described you as an ideas man, because it sounds like it's about the most dangerous world it possibly could be right now for an ideas man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I, I think what what i see and the reason why i'm the reason why i'm so optimistic about what's possible is that when i talk to people when i talk and, and anyone almost anyone when i talk to individuals 
there is a craving for civic life to mean something and to matter and to be part of something. And I think what, what, what has been, what it, what is important is that we focus on not just optimism, because sometimes optimism can feel Pollyannish or naive, like you, like you said, but to really focus on agency and our capacity to, to change things. And agency has too often in America been a feature of privilege and needs to be a feature of everybody's civic life and civic engagement. And that's a choice. That's a design. That's how, how do we choose to create community and be in community with each other and go about the work of delivering on the promises that we make to each other. Um, but people want something that they're, they, the sort of gross and dysfunctional reaction that most people have to sort of air quotes, scare quotes, politics um, is, is not, is not inevitable. And the desire for better is very apparent in the personal, the one-on-one conversations I have. The fact that the sort of national scale conversations all feel a little hopeless, that just means we might have to, that this may be sort of a, require a cultural groundswell around shifting the way we are willing to participate with other people. And that idea about genuine excitement and celebration and seeking difference um, rather than tolerating divergence from norm is a way of recognizing that the diversity of America is in fact makes us more creative. It is in fact a source of better ideas. You have a hopeful take if not an inspiring take and the concept that pluralism is really the motive power of a healthy democracy rings true to a lot of people they you know people are driven to participate they want to be able to shape their future but there's a lot of frustration in the feeling that they can't we've talked about that in several periods in american history and most recently trump channeling that towards anger is the feeling that they can't affect the outcomes. But what do you make, Michael, of the, of the suggestion that the system itself is kind of keeping a Darth Vader-like stranglehold on people, that the two parties have so deeply dug their heels in to certain worldviews that it's the parties themselves that we used to use as our vehicle to get things done that are really blocking things from getting done, that are making it really hard to express that pluralism. Because by design, those parties seem to be trending towards the extremes, catering towards the extremes. Uh, In a way, an extension of earlier, we talked about if it bleeds, it leads, and how that's happening in social media. I mean, the parties cater to that impulse of the sensational and to reward the most sensational among their number, which seems to be contrary to your suggestion that, you know, pluralism will get us out of this. The parties don't seem to be set up to reward debate and discovery and those notions. What do we do in that circumstance? I think they're not. I also think they are products sort of in the same way that Facebook emerges from a culture of innovation um, and President Trump emerges from a dis- sort of a dysfunctional civic uh, culture um, that there's sort of a chicken and the egg question around sort of systems and culture here that they make each other. Um, I think parties have been made more extreme 
by processes and rules that reward extremism made worse by media systems that elevate extremism and conflict and sort of elevate the, our, our sort of darkest sort of pieces of what's going on in culture, um, that you have a bunch of pressures that are making both parties more captive to, um, uh, sort of the smaller, sort of smaller, smaller set of voices. And, but importantly, sort of not tolerant to, to, um, not tolerant to new ideas, even that are aligned with them. Um, and I think what is, what is at work there is that political parties, and there's been debate about whether they're good or bad since the beginning of this country, um, I think are best for us when they are sort of philosophical containers for a way to see the world and the way to see each other and the way to see our relationship and responsibilities, uh, as a way of guiding, um, shared ideas about how to deliver for each other, about shared ideas, about what we, what we want to hold as true while experimenting and being creative about how to make those things come to pass. And I think with, with sort of partisan primaries and with winner take all elections and with the, there are anti-democratic features of our Republic. And as people feel pressure to that, they may be losing power and uh, in the the sense that uh, sort of the sense of minority, this is particularly true on the right, the sort of sense of like a minority in power losing power is going to grasp for the places where they can still have access to the levers. So they're going to grasp for the Electoral College, the Senate, the Supreme Court. And so we see those things happening. And um, I think what we need is if we want the our democracy to feel healthier, to feel like a real genuine sense of democratic governance and democratic culture alive in the systems is that we need to push back on the encroachments that have been made to make the system less democratic and less representative. And we need more choice and we need, and I think, you know, you look at what's going on with gerrymandering, with close primaries, with, um, uh, a, a bunch of the, you know, sort of, restrictions on ballot access. We've got a lot of anti-participatory, anti-majoritarian things going on in our system. And we need to just push, we need to push back on those things. We've seen experiments with ranked choice voting and open primaries, um, shift the debate and shift the conversation in campaigns. And then we need to look beyond, beyond campaigns to actual governing and community and civic life as where most of civic life resides. Elections are rare. Even though we feel like they're happening all the time, it's because they are a source of conflict and they're sort of good to cover. But all of the real sort of power and value of civic life is happening every day. And the more we can make our civic life about working together to deliver for each other and the less we can make it about power, the more likely we are to start getting leaders who sound more like servants and less like self-involved cultural figures. And I, I sort of say it that way because I think we have a failure of culture of public service going on all over the place. People sort of misinterpreting their roles and what service is for and what public service is for. And and so while I think both parties, both major parties share uh, or sort of suffer from like a lot of dysfunction and those dysfunctions are actually really are kind of really different. Um 
it's not necessarily that what people need is choice um, uh, right now and other, other paths to participate in. And I think, you know, we'll find way people will find ways to do that. Um, And I think that's something that people can be hopeful and excited about and look for innovation about and look to each other to be inspired. Um, And, you know, it may be the case that, you know, the two parties that have been the dominant parties for the last century are not the dominant parties for the next century. That may be the case. Uh, That's a pretty earth shattering way to have us wrap up this conversation. You dropped a big bomb there. And so I'm going to put you on the spot in two ways. The first is, I I think this just needs to be part one of a Miles Michael conversation. And maybe it's Uh not two parts, maybe it's seven parts. So I'm going to put you on the spot and see if you'll commit to doing a follow-up with me because I want to pull the thread on what you just said in in a lot of different ways. So that's question one. I've got another. I'm in for that. I'm in for that. Okay. You're in for another round. Good. Because I, there's a lot to unpack there. The second on the spot question is it is Saturday. We are trying to give people a sense of optimism. I actually want to know a burning question, which is what do you think is the funniest comedy film that you've ever seen. And you can't wiggle out of this, Michael, with a like, these are the three funniest movies or the American Film Institute says this is the number one funniest. What's the funniest film of all time? I will go with the one that I quote the most, uh, which is the original Ghostbusters. (laughs) That's such a solid answer. Who brought the dog? Uh, You're saying that to a guy who has a Ghostbusters zip-up onesie in his Strong. clothing closet, uh, proton pack uh, trap. In fact, the other day, I'm reaching to get luggage out of the closet. Can, can our can we can we now name our series of sessions "Dogs Living with Cats" and see what happens? <laughs> cats and dogs living together. Living together. Mass hysteria. I would have called it mass hysteria, but I think yours is better. <laughs> yeah, I was reaching up to get luggage, and this bag came and toppled down and made such a loud noise. And Hannah ran in. She was like, "What the hell was that?" And out spilled my Ghostbusters trap and like the PKE meter and the goggles from this bag. And Hannah just looked at me. She was like, what, what is this? It's like, this is the Ghostbuster gear, honey. This is how I protect our home. <laughs> so there's that. Mine, Michael, would be airplane. I don't know if you're a big fan of airplane. Michael Slaby, did we lose you? I think I just muted myself. There we go. I, I, I was I, like, wow. Is really yeah, no, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad a choice. I, I just, you know, can't use technology apparently. Uh, Michael Slaby, an absolute pleasure to have you, my friend. Uh, we're going to do it. Cats and dogs. We're going to do another round of this, maybe several more rounds. Appreciate you being with us. Any closing words of wisdom for people as they head into what's now the first ever official federal holiday long weekend for Juneteenth. I think you made a a really good nod towards it earlier, but anything we should be thinking about or reading going into the weekend? I think it's worth um, picking up anything written by someone who doesn't look like you is a good way of, of trying to start being more creative and more open to more ideas. And then I would go outside. (laughs) Amen. And I'll add to that. I just reread the the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, the original version. 
that he published. He, he edited it made many times later in life and provided more detail. But uh, the book as he wrote it, four years out of slavery, is is breathtaking. I mean, it's still incredibly readable, very fast read. Um, you know, you could knock it out in a couple hours. Would really uh, encourage folks to pick that back up. Um, in any event, Michael Slaby, thank you for being with us. Thank you for what you do. And Wonderful uh, to be here. Thanks for, thanks for making time, Miles. I appreciate it. Thanks for everyone right. for listening in. Thanks, everyone. We'll, uh, we'll be back with you soon.